morning, everyone. Uh, for those of you who are new, I am not the normal pastor. Uh, for those of you who know me, I'm not normal either, so I suppose that works out. Uh, our normal pastor, David, is away on retreat for the weekend uh, because the people in this congregation honored him by some time away. And so thank you guys for doing that. I know it's been restful for David. It's an opportunity for him to uh, recharge. Pastors need that. So I'm Rob Goff. I hold many titles and have many hats. So I'll introduce myself slightly so you know who I am, but I'm a, a missionary with an organization called Fathers in the Field. We're a Christian equipping ministry that helps churches reach out to fatherless boys in the community through men in the church as mentor fathers. Um, we have several men here at the church that do that. In addition to that, I also run the men's ministry here at the church. And so part of what we do for men's ministry is on Thursday nights from seven to eight o'clock, we get men together and talk about what does it mean for a man to lead his family spiritually. Trying to help men see the opportunity they have to lead their wives in Bible study, to lead their wives and their children spiritually so that we can honor God with our time. So we'd love to have you on Thursday nights from seven to eight. We also do once a month a men's breakfast. At the end of this month, we're gonna do a men's lunch and have pulled pork and go up to Pastor David's farm and take an opportunity to shoot rifles off and do those kinds of things. So there'll be more information with that as it comes along. So. Over the last few weeks, we've been going through the discipleship module for what does it mean to walk humbly? So this morning, uh, I'm not gonna put the words on the screen. We would love for you to use the app on your phone. I know that Pastor David loves it when you check in on Facebook if you use that app. I personally do not because I don't trust my phone. Yeah, you're laughing, but somebody will steal it and then post all kinds of things on Facebook. It's general paranoia. So we'd love to have you check in, and then if you can use the Bible app, what I would ask for you this morning is whatever version of the Bible you normally use, go ahead and use it, unless it's the, the New International Version. You're more than welcome to use the NIV this morning, but then at some point you're gonna be like, with your phone, I can't make my Bible do what Rob's doing. And if you're interested into why that is, I would love to have a conversation about Greek with you. And some of you know that I'm really serious. I'd love to have that conversation. So we're gonna be in James chapter four this morning. So while you're pulling that up, I wanna give you some information about what's going on for the context of James chapter four and what does it mean to walk humbly. So I want you to go back in time with me, all the way back to the first century church. The first century church was an amazing thing. These people had put their faith in Christ for salvation. Many of them had actually watched Christ ascend back into heaven. They'd seen the Holy Spirit pour out on the apostles. They'd watched all these people starting to come to faith. They're leaving Judaism the way it was always practiced to follow Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And their lives had changed. One of the things that they were allowed to do is they were still allowed to go into the synagogue and to worship. So in Acts, we learned that the believers every day, they would get together and they would go into the synagogue and they would worship together. 
And then they would spend their day and they would work their jobs. And then at night, they would come back together for the breaking of bread, which is for meals. They would come and they would eat together. And they would spend time together in prayer. And they would listen to the teachings of the apostles who would teach them all the things that Christ had told them. And the Bible says that they had everything in common. Christianity in the early stages started to develop rifts inside the body. So the body was this one cohesive thing, but when they interacted with the Jewish community, the Jewish community was saying, well, we don't believe Jesus is the Messiah, so we're gonna stop letting you trade in our markets. So they started getting pushed out of the Jewish markets and the Christians had to start forming their own marketplaces in order to trade, to make a living, to get food, because they couldn't trade with the Jewish market. In the Jewish market, they had to have their own market. As it went into the Gentile world, into the Roman world, the Romans had a rule for all of their markets. In order to trade in the market, you had to light incense to Caesar before you walked into the market. So you weren't allowed to trade goods or buy goods in the market unless you lit incense to Caesar on your way into the market. Well, Christians looked at that and said, well, that's idolatry. Doing that would actually violate, in principle, who we believe Christ to be. So then they couldn't go into the Roman markets. And so they banded together and started their own markets and started to care for one another. And there was a great level of care inside the body of Christ. The next thing you need to know is who they saw themselves to be. And David talked about this two weeks ago. In Christianity, what's taught is we as sinful people have a broken relationship with God. That broken relationship with God keeps us from pleasing him in the things that we do. And that displeasure between us and God is called sin, and that sin separates us, and that sin also sends us to hell. And so in the early church, as they came to faith in Christ and their old lives changed, and they were talking about what is this new life with Christ as the center, what does it look like? And theologically what they talked about was they talked about the old you and the new you. That seems kind of strange, but it's important to what we're talking about when we're talking about how, does, how do we walk humbly. The old you, the person before you put your faith in Christ for salvation, is sinful, so what does that mean? It means that you're selfish, it's about selfish ambition. Your life is about you. So you worry about you and what you can get and how you're gonna work and how you're gonna make things right and how are things gonna work along and what do you do each day and you worry about you. You don't worry about your neighbors. You might worry about your family, but you're worrying about them because you're still kind of worrying about yourself. And Paul makes a really good distinction. He says, the old you was alive to sin, alive to the things of self, and dead to God. That means when you wanted to do things the way you knew God wanted you to do, you attempted it but never quite got it right. But when you did selfish things and prideful things, you got them right every single time. 100 out of 100 times. Paul says that when the old you dies when you come to faith in Christ, so when you put your faith in Christ for salvation, the old you dies and a new you is born. And the new you is completely different than the old you. Very strange, but now instead of being alive to sin and dead to God, you're alive to God and dead to sin. 
which means that when God calls you to do certain things, to live a certain way, to follow him, you actually have the ability not only to do it, but to do it correctly, 100 out of 100 times. And when sin and selfishness comes in, believe it or not, you don't have to do it anymore. Always tell this story to people. Imagine a dead body. Everyone could imagine a dead body. Okay, if there's a dead body here on the stage with me, and I have a stick, and I poke the body, what happens? Hopefully nothing. If the person is not dead, then something will happen. They will be like, ah, stop poking me with a stick. Or they'll groan or something or roll. I don't know what to do. You poke a dead body with a stick, it doesn't do anything. In the early church, the understanding was, prior to Christ, when God asked you to do something good, you were like a dead body. God would say, come do good, and you wouldn't do anything. Because you're dead. You, you can't operate in that realm. But when you come to faith in Christ, the opposite becomes true. When God says, come and obey, this is what obedience looks like. This is how you grow and mature and become more like Christ. You can go do that. And when sin comes along and says you need to be selfish and all these things, believe it or not, you don't have to go because you're dead to it. It's a weird thing that has happened in our country is the way we communicate what it means to be a follower of Christ. Being a follower of Christ does not mean that you're suddenly perfect. However, it doesn't give you a license to continue to sin either. How many times have we heard people say, oh, well, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Well, yes, you are, so stop sinning. You're dead to sin, the Bible is very clear, you don't have to go do that. So if you're continually doing that, there's a disconnect. Now I realize there's a whole lot of things going on in your head. Believe me, we'll get, that's gonna loop all the way back around to what we're talking about today. The next thing that you need to know about the early church is they were waiting for what's called the parousia, which means the second coming. They believed every single day that Jesus could return that day. How many of us think that way? Have you, just to self-analyze, you don't have to raise your hands, but did you wake up this morning and say, oh, you know, Jesus might come back today? One of the tenets of the Christian faith is that Jesus is going to return for his followers, that he is gonna come and his return is imminent, which means it will happen and it will happen soon. So in the early church, they literally believed that any day Jesus was gonna come back, finish establishing the kingdom of heaven on earth, and change the world into the image that God had originally set for the world, which is a world in which the love of God permeates all humanity, changing our lives. They believed it would happen every day. So they lived every day as if Jesus was coming back that day. I want you to think about that too because it's gonna change the perspective of what we talk about today. They believed he was gonna come back right away. The next thing they believed is that humanity has the greatest value of anything on the planet. I stand here today to tell you that human beings are the most valuable thing on the planet. There is not a single thing more valuable than human life, nothing. You look at it from the stages of creation, God created everything and he named everything and then he created humanity and then he gave the job of naming which is giving identity 
That's what naming things does, gives it identity. So when you name your children, you give them identity. What you say to your children gives them identity. What we say to one another, whether encouraging or not encouraging, names that thing and therefore gives it identity. God stopped naming when he made humanity and he turned humanity around and he said, now go name the animals. He gave authority to to humanity. When humanity fell into sin, Jesus did not leave them in their sin. God did not just abandon humanity, but rather the second person of the Trinity himself, God, came down, took on human flesh, lived the perfect life that God's justice requires us to live, that in our sinfulness we cannot live, died the death of separation that that we deserve as sinners, rose from the dead, conquering death, the one thing none of us can do, because God sees value in humanity, so much so that he didn't abandon us, but died for us. And didn't just die for us, but you realize as a Christian, the Bible says that God gives you the Holy Spirit, so the third person of the Trinity, God himself comes and dwells in you. God himself is dwelling in believers. That, by the way, should make your brain hurt. Your brain should just be like, ah, I have no idea what to do with all this. Because humanity is the most valuable thing on the planet. The early church did two things. They looked at humanity and they said, these are the most valuable things on the planet. Nothing has greater value than humanity. And Jesus said that the world would know that Christians followed Christ by the way they loved one another. Please understand in the context, Jesus said, the world will know that you are my disciples by the way you love one another. Not by the way way we love the world, by the way we love one another. So this morning, if you haven't put your faith in Christ, I would love to to speak with you more about it. If you have, then you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you as a Christian. And every person in this room who who is a Christian is your brother and sister in Christ. And it is your duty, responsibility, and pleasure to care for them. The early church, when they saw one another's needs and when they saw where the other people were at, they didn't just go, oh, man, I wish Bob would work. I wish Bob wasn't so lazy. Man, I hate Bob. Bob drives me nuts. They said, man, Bob is hurting. Bob has value. Bob is important. We need to help Bob. How do we help him? How do we come alongside and help him? If humanity is the greatest, most valuable thing on the planet, and as brothers and sisters in Christ, we are commanded, commanded to love one another, then we should be loving one another. That's the nature of what we should be doing. So you will need all those things for this morning because when James is writing, he is writing to the early church, And the early church has started to have a problem. They went from this community that was growing by thousands daily where they're caring for one another and loving one another and all of a sudden, they have an issue. So we're gonna back up just a little bit. We are gonna be in James chapter four, but you can either listen or you can follow along. I'm gonna go all the way back to James chapter three, verse 13. James is talking about wisdom. He says, "By, by his good conduct, Let him show his works and meekness of wisdom. He's talking about the the believer. If if any of you wishes to be a teacher, to be wise, you should show it through the meekness of your wisdom. 
But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is pure and then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. It's a really good description of what does it mean to be a believer. Well, if you're gonna be a believer, then you need to have the meekness of wisdom. And what does the meekness of wisdom look like? Well, he jumps down, if you go from 13 to 17, he says, what does wisdom look like? Well, it's from above. The wisdom that God gives is pure, okay, which is the equivalent of righteousness. Um, it would be like having two types of water that you could have. If you're out backpacking and you have a water filter and you come across a puddle, you can actually put your water filter in the puddle, take the hose out, put it in your Nalgene bottle, pump through it, it'll pump through the filters and give you pure water, water that you can drink, as opposed to drinking out of the puddle, okay? So he's really making that contrast. You have the wisdom of the world, which is like a dirty puddle, or you have the wisdom of God, which is like purified water. So it's pure, and it's peaceable, and it's gentle, and it's open to reason, which means you can actually have a dialogue. As Christians, we should be able to go to each other and say, I think something's wrong. Are you okay? Oh, I'm fine. No, we need to talk about it. What you're doing is this and this, and I just don't think that follows scripture. So let's talk about it. And we should be open to reason, open to having that dialogue. Full of mercy, which is not giving people what they do deserve. That's what mercy means. Good fruits, impartial and sincere, rather than the opposite, which is full of bitter jealousy, selfish ambition. Okay, that's what he's talking about when we get into verse four. So chapter four, verse one. What causes quarrels and fighting among you? It's a good question, right? Is it not that your passions are at war within you? Again, that's that bitter jealousy and selfish ambition he was just talking about. What's it war in me? Bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. You desire and you do not have, and so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. So it was funny, I don't know about how, as parents here, how many of you have theological discussions with your children? I do. From the time my son was very little, he's 19, from the time he was three years old, we used to have deep theological discussions because I thought it was important that he actually thought through who God is. That's all theology is, the study of God. You should think that out. So I went into my son this week and we were reading this together and I said, what do you think he means by murder? My 19 year looks at me and he goes, Christians were killing each other. I said, oh, I'm not sure that's what it, what, it, what it means by that. I said, well, what did Jesus say about murder? So we looked back at Matthew 5, 21 and 22. Jesus said this, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable for judgment. But I say to you that anyone who is angry with his brother 
will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the fires of hell. So Jesus recalibrated for the church, what does it mean to murder? Looking at your brother and saying, I wish he was dead, is murder. You have just murdered your brother. You're just as guilty because the sin that leads to murder is an attitude of the heart that begins within. It's that self-righteousness and that selfish desire to be greater than other people that leads to that anger and that bitterness and that bitter disappointment. And it's that bitter disappointment that turns into rage and the rage that turns into the actual act of murder. And Jesus said, but when you have that in your heart, that's the first stages of being guilty of murder. So James is saying, pretty, pretty obvious, you, you desire and do not have, and so you murder. So imagine being in the church, which we are. Get that. And I have something really great. I don't know. What do I have that's really great? I have a forerunner. I think my forerunner is pretty great. So let's say I have a forerunner, and one of you in the audience really wants to go four-wheel drive. You want to go out four-buying. That's what you want to do. And you think, you know, Rob has a forerunner, and I don't have a forerunner. I wish that guy was dead. I could just take his forerunner. Yeah, I could do that. You know, I could, I think of all the things that Rob doesn't do with it. Rob doesn't take it hunting. I would take it hunting. Uh, Rob doesn't go and load it up with stuff and like try to get it stuck in the mud. I would go do that. I would drive up vertically up hills and down ravines. I would do amazing things that Rob isn't doing with it. So I really wish I had that. I know that seems like an absurd thing, but sitting here in the room, you're probably thinking of ways in which you're already guilty of this. We're all guilty of this. We sit around and we look at what other people have and we think, man, I wish I had that. I think I would do a much better job. So James is saying, well, that's the the first step is it ends up being murder. He says, you covet, which is a strong, an overwhelmingly strong desire to own something that is not yours. Moses in the Ten Commandments says that it's a sin to not only covet your neighbor's wife, which means to look at your, your neighbor's wife and be like, that's a good-looking woman. That man does not deserve that woman. I deserve a woman like that. And it also says you shouldn't do that with your neighbor's things. It's the same commandment. You shouldn't look at your neighbor's stuff and go, man, I wish, man, if I had that RV, I would use that thing all the time. Or if I had this, okay. You, you covet, but you, you don't obtain, so then you fight and quarrel. So then in the church, what are they fighting and quarreling about? They're looking at each other's stuff, and they're saying, oh, in their hearts, man, that guy just, he's not using what God has given him appropriately, and I would use his stuff appropriately. I just would. So then we start to fight, and we start to quarrel in the church, and this is what James says. I want you to follow with this. This is where if, you have, if you're in the NIV, it's going to cause you fits. So. You do not have because you do not ask. So rather than being humble and seeking help in the church, they're striving with one another. Remember, we just talked about this church, this group of people that said to each other, hey, let's, 
let's help one another. In the early church, when somebody had need, if I had food and you had need, you know what I did with the food? I gave it to you. If you had need of money and I had money, I gave it to you. So that when Barnabas sells his property in the beginning of Acts and he gives the money to the apostles, the apostles did what with the money? They fed the widows and they fed the orphans and they fed the believers in the church who had need. And then when Ananias and Sapphira saw that Barnabas was getting some pretty good kudos from the, from the church, they went and sold a piece of land too. And then they conspired together to not give all the money to the church, but to tell the church they gave all the money. Do you guys remember this story? So then they go to Peter and they're like, hey man, we sold our property for this money and they give him the money. And Peter says, well, is this all the money that you sold it for? The point isn't whether or not they gave all the money. The, the command is not to give all the money. All they had to do was be honest. And they lied about it. And the Holy Spirit killed Ananias and then killed Sapphira for lying about it. Not about the money, it was not about the amount of money. It was about the heart attitude. They gave the money so the church would think they were great, so that they would have prestige, because in their hearts, they were much more worried about what people thought about them than about that right relationship with God. They cared much more about how it looked than what the reality of it was. James is saying the same thing. Look, you guys are striving and fighting and arguing, and you know why you don't have because you have selfish ambition, you aren't going to the church humbly and saying to them, I have need. Rather than doing what's right, going to the body of Christ and saying, I have need. What they're doing is what the world does. They're striving with one another, there's selfish ambition, there's covetousness, and there's anger because you have what I want or you have what I need, why won't you give me what I need? And your brother would look at you and say, why didn't you ask? When we talk about what does it mean to walk humbly, it's understanding that God has blessed the church with all kinds of amazing resources. And why the church, I mean, I don't mean this building, I mean all of you. All of you who have put your faith in Christ for salvation are the church. That means that everything I have is just as much legitimately yours as it is mine. Because it doesn't belong to me either. It belongs to God. So if you have need and I have excess and you ask me, I would graciously give to you. Because it's not mine. And James is very clear you don't have because you didn't ask. And why didn't you ask? Because of selfish ambition and bitterness. He's already told them why they're not asking. You're selfish, you're being selfish. So let's follow on. Verse three, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly. The Greek word for this is kakos. It means to ask with evil intention or motivation. So he's saying, well, most of the time you don't have because you you're so arrogant and proud that you're not even asking. And then the rest of the time you don't get it because when you ask, you're asking with evil intention. Your motivation is evil. To spend it on your passions. The word there is 
hadion, which is where we get the word hedonism from. Having been a good hedonist at one point in my life, let me tell you about hedonism. When I was in high school, I was the world's greatest hedonist. I was, I drank in excess, I did all kinds of evil for personal self-pleasure and gain. I mistreated people, I used people, I treated people as if they were objects of no value at all other than what they could give to me. That's what hedonism is. Hedonism is the ultimate sinful lifestyle. It's where the whole world is not only about me, it's all for me. So James is saying, well, you don't have because you don't ask, and when you do ask, you ask with evil motivations because you want to be hedonistic. You want to take what they have so that you can have all kinds of pleasures for you. You're asking with selfish ambition. You're not asking because you have need. You're asking because you're acting like a non-Christian person and you're acting selfishly. So verse four, you adulterous people. I think that's pretty self-explanatory. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity towards God? So I thought, you know, this would be a great opportunity for us to talk about what does he mean by the world? First John chapter two, verses 15 to 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride in possessions is not from the Father but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with the desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So what does it mean by the world? It means the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride in possessions. So he's telling them, look, you're being friends with the world. You're so worried about what things look like to other people, what things look like to you, by how nice things look. You see nice things and you go, ooh, I'd like to own that, that's nice. Our whole society, by the way, is built on that. Have you ever watched a commercial? Everything is meant to look beautiful so that you'll desire it with your eyes and so then you'll crave it, so then you'll want it, so then you'll have to have it, so that you can have that possession so that other people will know how great you are. Because after all, owning that forerunner makes me great. By the way, you should go out and look at my forerunner. I don't know that it makes me great. But that's what we're taught in our society because our society is very worldly and it is the actual antithesis, the exact opposite of what Christianity is. The world tells you that your value comes from what you own, how much money you have, how pretty you are, how handsome you are, how strong you are, how put together you are, how non-screwed up you are. Christianity says your value comes from who you are in Christ. Your value comes from the fact that you are the most valuable thing on the planet. So valuable that God himself came and died for you. That you might have a restored life. So valuable that God himself dwells in you. How then can you be so wrapped up in the crap you own? 
It's not new. It's not like we're the first generation to have to worry about this. The people in James's day were struggling with, how do my things make me valuable? And James was saying, they don't. Your value comes because you're a human being. And your value is made that much greater by the sacrifice of God on your behalf. How then can you murder one another? How then can you sit in this room, ladies and gentlemen, and envy one another and be jealous of one another? It's very convicting. This is why David doesn't let me preach very often. (laughs) Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Remember that life we talked about before? The old you that was all about selfish ambition and gain and greed is dead. Not sleeping, not taking a nap, not like part-time in control of your person. Dead. If you have your faith in Christ, that person is dead. So you can't live the way the enemies of God live anymore. So stop it. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? God is jealous of the spirit he made to dwell in us because it's his spirit. The third member of the Trinity lives in you. So of course he's jealous for your time. He's jealous for your passion. He's jealous for your love because he dwells in you. If you're married or if you have children or if you have any human being that you just truly, really think is great, you become jealous for their time because you love them so much you just want to spend time with them because they're so amazing. And it is no different. God wishes that for all of humanity, but especially for those in whom his spirit dwells. Verse six, but he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So how then should we live? This is is James's really the crux of what he's saying. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. I love the word double-minded. It means to say with one thing what you believe and then to actually operate in a different way. So it would be for me to say, oh, you know, I think think that uh, adultery is wrong, which I do, and then go out and have an affair. That would make me double-minded. So what James is saying is, look, you, you have all kinds of pretty words that come out of your mouth, but then your heart is somewhere else but it doesn't have to be that way. We don't have to be that way. It's not how we're designed as believers to be. So what does he say? He says, draw near to God. It says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your heart, you double-minded. Purify your heart. To come before the Lord and say to him, Lord Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord, forgive me today for being proud. Lord, 
bring the men and the women into my lives that will help me stay away from pride. Be wretched and mourn and weep. <laughs> Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. And what is he saying here? He's saying don't revel in the world any longer. You want to be purified and set right with God. Stop finding your worth and value the way the world does in what the world says you should be valuable. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of possessions. Stop letting that be what makes you valuable. Stop it. Rather mourn. You should mourn that you've even acted that way. You should mourn and you should weep and you should let your, your foolish laughter be turned into gloom rather than act that way. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. To humble yourself means to put yourself in a right standing before God. So let me help you. I know because I go through this on a regular basis. Don't think that I'm just up here being like, all you people should be like me. Amazing all the time. The reality of this the situation is I know who I am in Christ. I know several of the men and women in here who do amazing things for the cause of Christ, who treat you guys as the body amazingly, who do amazing things for you, and most of the time the rest of us never know that's going on. Because those people would never go out and shout it to the rooftops. Because I tell you what, the Bible is very clear. If I go do some good thing that I know is the right thing to do that honors the Lord, and then I get up in front of you and tell you what it is, there's my reward. I've actually robbed myself of the reward. The reality of it is we don't do those things so that you will think we're great. We do those things because they're the things that God has told us to do. True humility just says, well, yeah, I did that. Why, why wouldn't I have done that? Or hey, here's a great opportunity to serve somebody. Would you come with me? I, need, I could use the help. So we, we've done, as, a, as men in this church, we've done several really amazing building projects. And we've taken along a couple of guys that really know what they're doing, who are the most humble, nicest, sweetest guys that would never want me to point out who they are, so I won't. But they do that because why wouldn't they? They give up of their own time. They give up their own talents. They use their own equipment. They never ask for money in return. They never ask for anything. They just do it because they know it's the right thing to do because it honors the Lord. The, the amazing people that work at our food bank, which is the second largest in Clark County, you guys should be proud of that. You should. You have an amazing group of people. You have an amazing group of people that make that run and those people would never go and tell you all the amazing things they do because they have a right understanding of who they are positionally with Christ. They said, my worth and value comes from who he is. He dwells in me and all I'm doing is learning obedience. That's what the Christian walk is. It's about learning obedience. In the, in the garden, Adam and Eve were learning obedience. They were told not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they failed to be obedient. When Christ comes and reconciles us to God in Christ, we are reconciled and the Holy Spirit lives in you, you are back to the state that Adam and Eve were in. Ladies and gentlemen, learn obedience. Learn what it means to follow God. That's what humility looks like. 
I know I'm not him, which is really good for all of you because I would be a terrible God. Know that you are not God, but also know that God sees humanity as the most valuable thing on the planet, and if you are a Christian and you are here today, then you need to see humanity as the most valuable thing on the planet as well. Every human being, it does not matter what color their skin is, what their gender is, how tall they are, how beautiful they are, how ugly they are, how skinny they are, or how fat they are. They're a human being. Christianity should be setting the standard for how we care for humanity. Not because we're great, but because we stand before a God who is great. Knowing that everything that you have, every possession you have, every meal you eat, every thing over your head, every piece of clothing on your back did not come from you, it comes from God and it is a gift. Knowing that everything that you own belongs to God still. Christianity for the longest time was known as the religion of the open hand, which meant that everything I have is like this to you. Do you realize how painful it is if I say that you can have this and then I do this with it? You can take it, but you're gonna have to pry it out of my hands. One, this is not very inviting, by the way. Two, when I lose this, when it's taken, either by you or by God or by someone, I've actually suffered loss because I was holding on to it. Christianity is about saying, Jesus is gonna come today probably this afternoon. So I really won't need that extra money anyway. I don't need that extra food, I don't need the tools, I don't need any of that. Because Jesus is gonna come today, and if he doesn't come today, he'll probably come tomorrow morning. Here's a good example, why is Christianity, and I only have a few minutes left, but how, why, how is, why is Christianity hard in rich countries? Have you ever wondered that? Really an amazing thing. In most of Africa, most of Latin America, most of Africa, most of the Middle East, and most of Southeast Asia, Christians actually get killed on a regular basis for being Christians. These are people that openly give their hearts and their homes and their foods to one another, having been in some of those countries, especially in East Africa, where most of the countries are Muslim. The Christians are the most generous, loving people I've ever experienced in my entire life. I have hundreds of people in East Africa that I consider to be family because they treat you like family. Oh, you're a, you're a Christian? Oh, come in, brother. What, what do you need? And how can we? People who have nothing, they give you everything because they think Jesus is coming tomorrow. <laughs> I probably won't need that anyway. He'll come. And if he doesn't come tomorrow, well, we'll just work it out tomorrow. We won't worry about it today. In rich countries, it's hard because we don't find our value and worth in God, we find our value and worth in money. So we plan for retirement and scrimp and save. And, and that, again, I'm not criticizing planning for retirement. There's also a part of being wise with the things that God has given you. But not letting those things be the safety net that keeps you from feeding a brother. Christ condemned the church when, in Matthew when he, they said, we're going to separate the sheep and the goats. And he'll say to, 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 the, to the goats, well, hey, I was hungry and naked and in jail and you never came and visited me. And they'd be like, what? Well, if we'd known it was you, we'd have come. And he says, when you do it to the least of these, you do it to me. And then he commends the sheep and he says, 
enter into my rest, because when I was naked and hungry and in prison, you fed me and clothed me and visited me. And they said, when, Lord? When did we do that? We visited lots of people. We fed lots of people. We clothed lots of people. Jesus said, anytime you, you, you do it to them, you do it to me. The problem in rich countries is we start to let the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride in possessions to be what we value. And it becomes very difficult when we see the need of others to just give, even though we know we should. So I know that David did a wonderful series, if you wanna go on the internet and look at it, that the church does not want your money or the church just wants your money. It was really good. So I'm gonna use money as an example, and I don't want your money either. I don't care if you tithe or don't tithe from a positional standpoint of on the stage, I do from a heart standpoint. So the Bible says that you should tithe, you should give 10%. So I thought, okay, well, what's a median income in America? It's like 60,000 a year. I know some of, some of us in here are going, man, I wish I made 60 grand. I'm not exactly rich either, so I think that same thing. So if you made 60,000 a year, 10% of that is $6,000 a year in tithe of just saying, God has asked me to give back the first fruits of what he has given to me. Again, everything belongs to God, and he was gracious enough to give me a bunch of it so that I could eat and do all the things. And I'm going to give 10% of that back to Christian ministry, whether it's the church or missions or whatever you're going to do with it. I'm going to give 10% back to what God would want me to do. That's $6,000 a year. That's $500 a month. Now, the exciting part. How many of you, and I don't want to see hands, I want you, this is a mental thing, I want you to think this one out. How many of you give $500 a month if you're making $60,000 a year? Most people in America tithe between 1% and 3%. And even if you made $30,000 a year, which by the way is only slightly higher than minimum wage, minimum wage you'd make just under $20,000 a year, would be $250 a month. Ladies and gentlemen, we don't give, we don't tithe well. And that's not everybody. I know some people in this room that give way more than 10%. Because too often, our hearts are still around the things we own and not around the people around us. So... James says, why are you having all these problems? You're having all these problems because your heart is no longer where God wants your heart to be. You've gone back to having a heart where the world has their heart. Instead of experiencing triune love, the love of the Father through the Son in the Spirit, which means that God the Father loves us so much that he sent the Son, Jesus, to die for us. And then when you put your faith in Christ, he loves you so much that he sends the third person of the Trinity, the Spirit, to live in you so that you can learn obedience, not alone, but through the power of the Spirit and through the body of Christ and understand you are the body of Christ. None of these commands that James gives are meant for an individual person. They are meant for a corporation. They are meant for all of us. When you came to to Jesus, you put your faith in Christ on your own, and then you stopped being a solo relationship between you and God, and it started being a corporate relationship because you entered into the body of Christ, and now your relationship with one another, with other believers in Christ, is just as vital as your relationship with God. You don't have because you don't ask. So as the body of Christ, what should we do? 
to walk humbly before God. One, we understand positionally where we are before God, and then we understand humbly that we are connected to one another, and we are asked to give to one another, and we are asked to love one another in the same way that Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. That's an amazing thing. You have the opportunity to walk humbly before God by caring for one another for building relationships, for getting to know the people in this room intimately. And what does it mean to carry their burdens? What does it mean to help them? What does it mean to love them? What does it mean to do all the things that need to be done? And then if you have need, all you have to do is ask. Don't be angry with one another. Do not fight with one another. Do not quarrel with one another. Do not murder one another. Simply ask. Simply humbly put yourself in a position where you are willing to swallow a little pride and ask. But understand, if you want the things to be hedonistic, to go and follow after the things of the world so that the world will think you're great, the church will tell you no. Not because we don't love you, but because we do love you. Because true love is seeing the needs of others and putting their needs above your own. That's what love is. Love means I see what you need, not what you want, what you need. And I love you so much that even if I need it, I will give it to you for your needs above my own. Because humbly before God. So here at 6A, we talk about doing justice and loving mercy walking humbly with our God. And all of those things are, are tied together in who we are positionally in Christ. So let's pray. God, I just pray that you would watch over us, bind us together as a church, that we might lift one another up, that we might come together in a way that honors and glorifies you, that we would care for each other in a way that honors and glorifies you, that we would share our needs, that we would be humble and loving, that those outside the church might see us and see our love and be attracted by that, that we might minister to them as well. We pray this in your name. 